0: And welcome to another edition of the Advent IM podcast, Risk and Business, or as we like to think of it, a little bit of security chit-chat. I'm delighted to be joined today by Cy Pavitt, Head of Cyber Awareness, Behaviour and Culture at the MOD, and recently returned from a glamorous trip to Las Vegas, speaking at the Black Hat Conference out there, on malicious floor-walker interaction. And I'm sure we'll hear more about what that's all about as we get into the conversation, so welcome. Thank you so much, Uh, this is a really interesting conversation. We've been having some good conversations
1: before we've even sat down, so this is gonna be a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, as in true podcast uh, format, we've done all of the good content before we sat down to record it, so we'll see if there's anything left in the brains. Oh yeah, no, this is me dry, that was it. (laughs) You've had your opportunity to have a conversation, this is it. So, Cy and I got together um, a few months ago, actually, after a conversation around sort of behaviours, cultures, um, the, the sort of cyber um, side of understanding people's behaviours and attitudes, belief systems, and and kind of what makes them tick, and therefore how does that affect how they interact with us, our businesses, the cyber world, and indeed the crossover between their personal culture when it comes to online behaviors and how that translates into the workspace as well. Yeah absolutely
1: I should be honest this is my life's obsession I love this stuff and I think you raised a really interesting point and the first thing that I always kind of like to talk about here is this this kind of delineation between culture and behaviors Uh, and anyone who knows me is now rolling their eyes because I always talk about this it's such an important point in the, the rhetoric around this work and what we do, we kind of throw around culture, awareness, behaviors, education uh, as interchangeable phrases, but they're not. I think it's really important to consider the fact that, that the uh, culture layer is what we're aspiring to. Okay? We want to see a culture, right? We want to have uh, an organization that autonomously fixes its own problems, that redresses imbalances, that looks for areas where uh, we're out of sync and then fixes them themselves. Uh, that thinks right together. So a self-healing culture. Yes, yeah, that's, that's the ideal, isn't it? So if you've got someone who uh, is behaving in a way that's insecurely, you want the organization itself to know inherently, not, not to be told by external forces like posters or media or conversations, instructions or leadership. You want an organization that knows in amongst itself that's deviant behavior.
0: That's something that doesn't fit us. So then it fixes itself. I mean, that's really interesting because there's been a lot of stories recently, if you think about culture, not, not cyber culture, but organisational culture, mm. um, where the investigations into, if you like, deviant behaviour, unacceptable behaviour, yes, misuse of you know, WhatsApp um, and so on, mm-hmm. where the biggest thing that's been called out there is the fact that the behaviour's not being called out.
1: Exactly. Exactly, and that's the cultural layer right there. It is the organisation thinking together. There's an us, right? But what's what's the preceding thing before thinking as an us is thinking as a me. Uh, I've got to be able to have my own set of values, my own understanding of the world, to demonstrate a set of behaviours in order for them to normalise socially. Uh, we can't think as an us until we have an us, and we can't think individually until we think. Oh, can't think as a group until we think individually first, and then we normalise those individual thoughts. So really, the focus right now needs to be thinking about what behaviours are deviant. I
0: keep saying the word deviant. I hope you know where I'm coming with that. I don't mean deviant as in dodgy. I, I mean I deviant think as do, in, I think you do mean deviant as in dodgy. Well, well not necessarily. But not in the way that some people might understand the word deviant. And exactly. Dodgy. So I should probably uh, clarify: deviant
1: as outside of social norms. Uh, we all have a, a set of things that we agree to. There's this kind of set of principles that we we just have around us all the time. They're so so normal. They're invisible. Uh, that we can spot when someone's behaving a little bit strangely. And that's a constantly fluctuating thing. Culture is, is this constantly moving feast. Um, and it exists in different circles as well. We will talk about that in a
0: minute. I uh, actually... Sorry, this is, a, this is a connective thought thing. You know, you just have to go with it. In the taxi on the way over here, I was just looking out the window. Um, there was a woman on the street corner, basically talking to herself, waving her arms around. And I thought, you know what? Ten years ago, before the arrival of earbuds, that would have been completely <laughs> deviant behaviour. That yeah, would have been, yeah. there is somebody over there acting completely out of the norm. Yes. But of course now, with the technology being what it is, if you see somebody on the street corner talking to themselves, your immediate assumption, because we've normalised it, mm-hmm. is they're having a conversation with somebody else. But they might not be. No, no, they might be. But that that's you constructing an image of what you think is normal
1: behaviour. You've got a reason to justify that. Uh, and that happens in security culture all the time, that we look around and we see things that are normal behaviours and that we justify ourselves. I know we'll probably talk about the, the floor walker work in a minute, but it's all centered on challenge. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think mm-hmm. challenge is one of the most important things we should be aspiring towards. Uh, that, right now, is the perfect example of normative behavior. When we see something that is a little bit uncomfortable, okay, so you, you do see a person walking around waving their arms and yeah. talking, and you get a little bit closer, and you see a lack of earbuds, and you start to think, oh my god, I'm gonna get murdered. Your behaviour changes, right? Of course, yeah. Yeah, so why doesn't that happen in security? Why, when we see something that makes us feel equally uncomfortable, we know that something's wrong when someone strolls through the building and starts picking up files.
0: Do we find it so very hard to go, I'm sorry, what are you doing? Do you you think part of that is that we've had 20, possibly even 30 years, of people just being told to do as they're told, rather than us actually asking people to think for themselves? Uh, And, you know, if, if you look at most organisational security policy will be a set of black and white rules and you do not, I'm going to use the word deviant again, do not deviate from those rules. Mm-hmm. So heaven forbid that you should think for yourself. Yeah, uh, We actually did some work with an organisation a few years back and at the end of the um, week's work we had their board of directors actually um, wringing their hands because they realised that they had been disciplining staff for doing the right thing because it was in breach of policy. Yes, brilliant
1: oh, yeah. I love it uh, a, a major component without shadow of a doubt um, but I think there's a force that goes back further uh, and it goes back hundreds of years okay uh, so I should, should introduce I, I'm also a, a professional social engineer uh, I make a portion of my money by breaking into places and stealing things uh, most fun you can legitimately have to make breaking on. into places and stealing things most of the time legitimately yes <laughs> uh, no all the time I should be yeah it's always honestly legitimate.
0: Is a, is a white hat burglar.
1: Exactly, white hat burglar. Uh, but if we're looking at forces that influence challenge behaviour, not just challenge behaviour, but I'm using that as an example of all the behaviours oh. that we're expecting of people. Uh,
0: if I hold the door for you, what are you going to do at the next door for me? Hold it open for you. Well, you've got to, haven't you? That's what, behaviourally, that is what manners dictates, that you would do that. Perfect. He's in manners, isn't it? It's a social contract that you and I have. Yeah.
1: And we, uh, if you look at the, the, the literature around behavioural economics, we cannot stand having this kind of inequality between us, this, this moment where you're in my social debt. You, you will feel this incredible internal power to try and balance that out. Um, but it works the other way too. If we are in a state of social balance, you will do anything you can to not rupture that balance. And calling someone out and saying uh, you've not got your ID on, Or saying you probably shouldn't be plugging
0: that USB stick in, is damaging that balance. So this this is something that's hardwired into us as humans, that it goes back way before the advent of the technology we're talking about today. Yeah. Um, this has got nothing to do with IT, it's got nothing to do with cyber, this is pure human instinct, pure human psychology we're talking about. Oh I agree entirely, this goes back thousands upon thousands of years from
1: when Engaging in pro-social behavior. If I give you a bit of the warmth of my fire, we're going to be friends You probably aren't going to hurt me as much as you would have if we were enemies mm. So that's that's where this is all stemming from we're, we're trying to, to, to remediate risky behaviors in, in the, the security domain on mass We're trying to fight against evolutionary psychology. We're trying to get people to behave in a slightly different way But to link that back to the culture piece, that all starts with trying to uh, change the way that someone interprets a specific behaviour. But by that logic, isn't culture already hardwired? No. Culture isn't hardwired because it's flexible. Uh, If we were in a state of hardwired culture, aside from the fact that we would still have... uh, Well, we would see no change against some of the more destructive forces in society, racism, sexism, and, and those things still exist... Absolutely, but we have seen progression over time. There is an evolution of the culture that underpins it. But what was the thing that drove the evolution of culture? was individual behaviors, the way that specific people built relationships with other people. And we need to do that, but we need to do that in a way where we're building relationships with technology on an individual basis, before we can build on that individual basis of better practices to get to a place where where culture starts to develop itself. And I'm of the belief that if we focus our attention on genuine risky behaviours, we can start to see culture naturally develop with no attention to it whatsoever. We don't need to try and do
0: cultural change. We need to do behavioural change and watch culture flourish. So basically we're putting the cart before the horse by trying to change culture rather than behaviour. So the traditional model says, if you develop the right culture, the behaviours will follow. Exactly. But we need to develop the right behaviours, and the culture will follow. And even beyond that, the, 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 the uh, research and literature, if you look at the classic Edward
1: T. Hall's model of culture, right the iceberg, mm-hmm. you've got all of this stuff sitting beneath the surface, the, the value systems, the, even things like aesthetics, the way that we think looking mm. works. I'm, I'm, for those who are listening, obviously, I'm in a polo shirt. Uh, in the nice, glamorous main building in London, I am almost deviant, because I I stand out because of that. That's uh, normative behaviour, whereas what we're trying to drive towards is something that normalises the secure behaviour. Yeah, so if I, to do that, yeah, yeah, if I try and uh, tell everyone that, that culturally speaking, polo shirts are okay, well, that's going to be a really hard sell because I'm one person wearing a polo shirt and everyone around is wearing a suit. If I get. So you're a, the oddity. I am the oddity. Well, that's the usual, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but if I persuade people one by one to wear a polo shirt to work, and I can use a variety of techniques to do so, uh, but I can persuade a small group of people, eventually more people will say, okay, well, this is starting to become a socially acceptable behaviour. And then I can drag more people down the line of thinking that way, and eventually you' hit critical mass and it will turn over. So even if you're talking about something as abstract as aesthetics, the way that we look, the way to drive is the top of the iceberg, the bit that pokes out of the water.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: That's the behavior because you can only
0: interface with culture through behavior. So we see this both in a positive and a negative way in society generally, don't we? Yeah, uh, you know, certain behaviors at first appear, the oddities, then it gains a critical mass. You know, mm-hmm. we, we saw it through COVID, and and you know, there would be extremists, anti-vaxers, etc. Unless you're an anti-vaxxer, in which case I'm the extremist. Um, <laughs> but it starts off as a as an abstract concept, and then more people buy into it, and eventually there's a critical mass, and suddenly it's the truth. Yeah. And you know, I, I was I found it fascinating actually through COVID that. In the first lockdown, people were coming on to um, video meetings, still in a suit, shirt and tie.
1: And then, well, the top half of one, Yes. Right? Yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> and then the tie went. Yep. And then the shirt became a polo shirt. Mm-hmm. And what's really fascinating is actually coming back out of COVID, back to face-to-face work, there are more people dressed, I suppose what you would describe define as smart casual in mm-hmm. the workplace than there ever were three years ago. Without a doubt. Because it's become normalised that we can we can dress this way and still do work.
1: Yes, but one person had to change their behaviour first. Yeah, There were people in any given social group who, usually uh, a kind of prototypical leader of a group, will lower their standards with their dress. And everyone goes, okay, I've got social permission, I'm allowed to do this now. I can take it maybe one notch a little bit further. And it's not a degradation, it's an evolution of that kind of thing.
0: So if we, want to, if we want to do that in the opposite direction, we want to increase standards, mm-hmm. do we start with those people who have got the authority and get them to be the exemplars rather than the mass education of the workforce and expect everybody to up their game from day one? OK, there's two points here which are really cool, and I don't want to forget one, and I'm
1: guaranteed if we talk about this, I'll go down one rabbit hole and I'll completely forget the other, right? So I think there's, there's a question here of what is authority, mm-hmm. uh, absolutely vital, uh, and then the other one's already gone. My god, wish I understood how that worked. Anyway, we'll talk about authority. The uh, authority point, we associate authority with pay. Uh,
0: that's that's the Western way of viewing authority. So if you're paid more, you have more authority, right? Yeah. Uh, but that's not true. But usually because you're more senior in the organization, you get paid more. So it's your position and yeah. and pay, and that sort of, the fact that we use these scales, don't we, to, to indicate seniority. We do. So even within certain career groups, you'll go from a technician, or junior technician, to a technician, to a senior technician. Yep, yeah, which
1: is is kind of directly correlated to the amount of money you're earning.
0: Yeah. yeah? Now, I think
1: it's money now, and that, that's an evolution, by the way, that that wasn't always that way. It used to be age, didn't it? The, the older you got, the more you had a, a sense of gravitas around you. But that, that's changed significantly. Now it's largely about money. And I, I'm surprised that we haven't started to figure out that that's not quite right either, when some of the most powerful people in society uh, are a voice. They, d- they don't even have a face. They're, they're a voice or, or a picture on Instagram. Uh, they're just someone who comments. In uh, a, through through a uh, online screen name, rather well, than having a real presence. Look at the way in
0: which Elon Musk has manipulated the uh, cryptocurrency markets over the years, simply uh, by his own yeah.
1: tweets. And and the the, the um, Ukrainian war, mm-hmm. the the uh, yeah the Dogecoin bit, which was just fantastic, wasn't it? Arguably yeah. one of the most powerful people in the world within his little character limit. And I, th- I think that's fascinating. Obviously, the, the Elon Musk thing—he he does have the money to back himself up, but it's not his money that's driving his power; it's his presence, his social media presence. So I think we can look at authority in a radically different way. We look at people who genuinely influence others. So let's let's talk about practically how could you do this? How could you uh, apply this tool? When we do things like surveys, uh, and and I should be absolutely upfront—I loathe a survey. I hate them. Uh, because, they're, oh God, they're boring, aren't they? We should do they? a
0: survey of our um, listeners, and...
1: I'm out. I quit. I <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I hate surveys. Look, do a
0: survey about how many people hate surveys.
1: Wow. That's good. Introduce the concept of a paradox early. Fantastic. Uh, but... Uh, Yeah, I hate surveys because you're asking someone how they feel about something. We have, as I'm sure most major organisations, companies, government departments do, they ask people questions about your employment and how you feel about your work. And there is one question in it that I love. Every every year we get the same question, it makes me smile. And it's, are you paid enough? What a thoroughly ridiculous question to ask.
0: How many people say yes? Well, all of them.
1: Oh, it's probably not 100%, uh, but but in, in our area, you're going to see a mass sway towards, uh, yeah, I'm not paid enough. I'd like to be paid more. Because you're, you're giving people autonomy to say, uh, would you like more money? Who says no? Who says, I don't want more money? You know? So surveys are, are kind of this, this destructive instrument if you use it in the wrong way. If you don't think about how it, it could really have an influence, if you don't think about uh, things like self-report bias, then you kind of waste any time. You're doing it because other people are doing it. But What we could do is start to consider the questions we put in security surveys or any data capture that we do. And then we could start to consider the way that people perceive their own authority and the authority of those around them. So rather than asking obvious on-the-nose questions, have you clicked on a phishing email? We could say, who would you uh, be most surprised if they clicked on a phishing email? Okay. So we start to identify uh, the social network in any given environment. And when we find those nodes, social nodes of people who are either demonstrating more secure behaviours or that other people have expectations of, because you're, even if you've got the world's most secure person in the office, asking a question like, who would you be most surprised about? They must be a social node as well as a security node. They're, they're visibly present to be secure.
0: So these may not necessarily be identifying people who are, as we've just defined, authority, senior Or with the highest pay. Exactly. But there is a a social authority element to this as well.
1: Yeah, it could be anyone. Anyone in the office is exactly the right person to be instructing or guiding others. You take age out of the equation, you take pay, seniority, none of it matters. We want to know who is the most likely to influence those around them. It's like uh, cybersecurity by social media. I love it. So this is a a really interesting way that we can employ um,
0: authority. What do you reckon? I think that's amazing. It's, I've never really thought of it in that concept before, um, and I guess if I had, then I would now be in a career doing um, psychology rather than cybersecurity. security. Was um, <laughs> well, good to know I've got a niche. <laughs> so the two things that I, I raised were authority and education.
1: Ah, there we go. Thank you so much. My God, that's fantastic. You're queuing me back in. You see? Uh, education's Uh, A fascinating one, because we lean on that quite heavily, don't we? Mm. We say that we need to educate people. And I absolutely agree. One of the core components of any given behaviour is psychological capability. Someone needs to know how to do the task and have the mental capability to achieve that task before we can expect them to do so. If I ask, uh, now I'm trying to think of something you'd be unlikely to be able to do, operate an electron microscope, would you be able to do so? As an ex-laboratory technician, probably. Yes. Fantastic. That was... Kind of a left-field one, but thank you very much. Uh, but you would, because you you managed to... Oh, biomedical uh, scientists, as they're now referred to. Very flash. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We were talking about euphemisation earlier on, weren't we? We were, yeah. yeah. Uh, but you, you gave me a rationalisation of why. So you've got the psychological capability or the knowledge to be able to do so. Mm-hmm. If I ask other people, if I stop people in the street and I did uh, you know, a, a bit of data capture like that, people are going to say, you know, you're off your rocker. Why, why would I know how to do that? It would be unreasonable to ask them to do so.
0: My son had a conversation with him recently. He went to stay with my daughter who lives in a, a rural location. He could not understand why he can't get an Uber. So <laughs> yeah. Why isn't there an Uber available from this location? And the idea that he actually had to phone a cab company and pre-book a taxi mm-hmm. was completely unfathomable. Yeah. And that's just because that is the that's the world in which he has um, he's evolved into that world where that technology has always been available to him. He lives in a city, he lives in, on the outskirts of Newcastle. Yeah. So of course he's used to 24/7 fast food, an Uber being on the click of a button. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not that's not normal in other people's lives. No, but what you've got there is is someone who immediately
1: is lacking the psychological capability that they don't know that they don't know that but as soon as you take the box and say, you can't do that, there is no Uber out here, they go, all right, fair enough. I'll find a new way around it. It hasn't stopped their ability to travel. It hasn't damaged their opportunity to do something, has it?
0: Uh, so well, they- actually, my daughter having to book the taxi for him because he just couldn't get his head around the concept. That's a whole different thing. Yeah. <laughs> I really shouldn't be talking about this live on air, but uh, he, he won't listen to my podcast because I'm an oldie. All right, so you can say anything. Yeah, I don't have authority in his world. <laughs> the point I'm trying to get across is about
1: uh, in that case, you give someone knowledge, they can remediate the problem. Right.
0: Yeah. So is this the what we used to refer to? You go through that journey from unconsciously incompetent, Death. consciously incompetent, yep, and so forth. A habit forming cycle, yep. definitely.
1: Uh, but what I'm saying is that is there other forces? Are there other forces that are directly impacting people's ability to behave in a secure way? Yeah. Uh if we look at things like policy generation and being in government, I love policy generation just like anyone else. Um and we make long, winding, interesting, complex policies that cover every eventuality for an organization of two hundred and forty four thousand people, covering about three million people when you consider service families and veterans and your debt forces. Okay, so we're trying to create a book of rules that is for three million people. It's a big book. You That's know? a big book. Yeah, yeah, we've got we've got a lot of really interesting rules. That, you know, we're talking about people with different languages, we're talking about people who uh, come from different parts of the world, we, we've got a global footprint, we're talking about deployed on operations, uh, when people aren't on operations, when they're at home doing whatever they do. It, it's massive, right? Massive, massive list of, of rules. Now I could, uh, under the education idea, just tell you all of those rules. Then you're going to behave perfectly secure, right? I've educated
0: you. Well, we've got issues of memory there as well, haven't we, you know? Well, yeah, retention, understanding, memory. It's massive. The problem is not
1: as straightforward as just educating someone. It's about tailoring and you know this, I know you know this better than most. It's about finding the right way to communicate the right information to the right person at the right time. So education isn't just education. Education has to come with an understanding of the people that we're trying to educate. Which is why things like online learning that's ubiquitous for everyone doesn't help as much as it perhaps could. Mm. If we applied things like individuation as a rule that when you go into your online learning system you feed it a bit of information first so then it can tailor what you learn and it gives you the right thing at the right time. So we could, we could take advantage of technology. But we can go a bit wider than education as well because there are many things that we do that we, we teach people and that we can find out that they know the right answer. And I'm thinking this is, this is a, a universal problem for anyone who owns an IT system in, in a corporate government environment, is USB devices, right? USB yeah. devices are, they're going to do damage. Uh, it's, it's the easiest way to load malware onto any given system. Since the floppy disk. Exactly. Even easier than an email because I need you to click on an email. I don't need you to click on a USB stick. I can plug it in if you won't plug it in for me, and odds are I can persuade you to plug it in for me anyway. Uh, So we've got uh, someone plugging USB devices. Now, if we did research and we went out and talked to people, uh, we would very, very likely find that almost universally people know that it shouldn't do that. They know that that exposes them to a risk. Yeah. yeah. So they have the psychological capability. They know the right answer. If we keep educating that person, what have we changed? Nothing. 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 They have the same amount of education they did beforehand. They still know they shouldn't do it. And yet, it wouldn't eradicate the behavior. Do they know why they shouldn't do it? Now, that's a valid point. We could uh, try and reframe the education. We could try and uh, take them down a different pathway. We could use narrative learning techniques. We could use gamification, which I love. I think gamification is a profoundly powerful tool uh, and all of those different things but if we were to, and this is a pure hypothetical, dig into the understanding component then we would still find people doing it even if they understood exactly what we wanted them to do and that's because we're missing other slices of the pie what if their entire pay right? the reason they go to work is predicated on being able to move information from one machine to another and then we fail to give them the mechanism to do so I, I don't care how much we teach that person if what they have to do to get paid is use a USB stick they're going to do it.
0: I had a very very similar interest in my in my head very interesting conversation a friend of mine works in a medical laboratory still um, that I went through military training with um, after wanna cry they, they the NHS rigorously enforced the rules Including that uh, every computer terminal has to automatically lock out after five minutes of inactivity, and he, he was saying to me after they set all of this up, he said, "All we do when we go in on nights is we stick something on the space bar of every computer to stop them locking out." <laughs> I know we should. I know we shouldn't. Yes. These were I know we shouldn't, but mm-hmm. it's such a having to log into every computer every time you get to one mm-hmm. especially at three in the morning when somebody's crashed and the doctor yeah. said it's life or death I need those results now yeah I said those, those extra 10 seconds can make a difference and so sometimes do we not do we not almost set our users up to fail because of the environment we put them in because we put rules in place that don't need to be in place or we put barriers in the way I mean, it's really interesting you say if your job relies on you moving data from one computer to another and they're air-gapped and the only way to do it is using a USB stick you'll do it because you want mm. to get paid and you yeah. w- in many cases actually our, our, our workforce they don't want to do a bad thing they're not being malicious No. and so often the security breach occurs because they're trying to find a way around security controls to do their job yeah yeah. because we're, we're building so security were security
2: controls actually designed to achieve an objective in the first place so, if there is an objective that needs to be achieved, then the security control should work to help that
0: outcome. Well, look at changing your password every thirty days.
2: Well, ridiculous.
0: Right, where, but where's that rule come from?
2: Well, what, I, I, why I do we change it.
0: our passwords every thirty days? Uh, yeah, it minimises. All right, the thirty days thing massively flexible,
1: isn't it? And there are places it's three months or six months. Uh, that that I think is is kind of a litmus test of risk appetite. That if you're in an organization that forces you to change your password into, uh, you know, a 12-character random-digit password that you've got to remember on the seven systems and it's done every 30 days, they have zero risk appetite. There is no way that they're willing to take any chance because they're afraid that maybe it's exposed on a breach. Uh, But you, you can look at it on a spectrum, can't you? Because I also appreciate the other end of that spectrum being you're given one password that's five characters and then you can work it for 20 years And then when you're done, you hand that password over to someone else. We've got to find the middle ground, right? We've got to do something in the middle. Well,
0: maybe, but my point about the passwords is actually it was one of those rules that was thought up in the early days of computing that was thought to be a good idea. Mm. And it was one of the rules that stuck. Many, many other ones didn't stick. Mm. This just happened to stick. And even GCHQ now say it (laughs) counterintuitive to make people change their passwords all the time. Yeah. because over time it degrades their capability to keep thinking up good passwords without a doubt yeah and, and so that's the point is that sometimes we're following rules because we've always done it that way not necessarily because those rules make sense or that in today's environment as opposed to 30 years ago hmm. that those rules continue to make sense I agree So if
2: we're looking at something that's talking about people's behaviors right people people what they actually do What they actually do is always going to trump any strategy or policy that you try to put in place. That's always going to be the way. So by taking the same approach with security and saying, we're going to look at the behaviours that you carry out and therefore try and make sure that this is going to work with the policy um, and then that will become the culture because the culture will be what people do. Yes. You You don't make a culture. It's it just because if people, if so, the, the example that you just gave with the, coming in and putting staplers on everybody's space bar, for instance, that's the culture. That that that's well, it's, it's been normalised because yeah. this everybody do.
0: everybody does it regardless mm-hmm. of who they are on night shift everybody does it so because one person came up with well, a good idea they're going
2: to do it too because the yeah. monkeys before them who told them don't touch that because it's electrical. I really it's don't one think of my favourite analogies
1: but is it it the monkeys works. and the ladder you, yeah you, yeah. yeah
2: gonna grab the bananas and then yeah, take even the when you change away. all yeah. of the monkeys out. It's because that's what everybody has always done. It's learned like behaviour. The most yes. dangerous words in business, this is the way we've always done it. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it seems to me that in security, it doesn't seem to work any differently.
1: But there's a challenge with that, okay? And something I found with the work over the last couple of years trying to do this in, in defence. Um, it, it's a very grand picture to say that uh, we can design security around behaviours. Security is, without question, going to be. An additional burden mm-hmm. okay if we lived in an ideal world we could strip security out and enable behaviors enable productivity get people doing what they need to do so if that's the ideal world anything that we do for security is going to increase the burden so I think it's really important rather than trying to build security security already exists in one form or another mm-hmm. we've got to try and find a via media we have to find a way to determine risky behaviors understand what they are and then attempt to impact those behaviours. And this is where I'm going, so education is a portion of that, but so is capability. You, you need to have the, the physical assets to be able to do your job. If we've got someone that's moving data using a USB device, great, give them an authorised cheap dipped USB device. If we've got um, someone who needs access to a certain system regularly working in a hospital, let's find a way to empower that. Maybe we use biometrics. Mm-hmm. it doesn't take that long to type in you just use your thumbprint and you're in
2: yeah
1: or you could use facial recognition which is kind of built into microsoft now so you wouldn't even feel that the the, the, the kind of friction of that process so we could lean on that yeah. uh, but there's something even more powerful than those two things all right something that is probably the most powerful force on earth and that is motivation
2: mm-hmm.
1: why should i bother and security always degrades motivation because Everything is just another layer of friction. Whatever we're asking people to do, if we want people to challenge one another, well, it's deviating from this kind of, well, I just want everyone to have a nice life and I want to be friends with everyone because that's safe. If we want people to report something, well, now I have to take time out of my day to write a report. Even if it's two words, bad thing happened, or whatever, it doesn't really matter. It's still a friction, a friction that wasn't there before.
0: And so in some cases, actually, I think it's even worse than that because People are expected to report when nothing has happened. <laughs> near misses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I, my, my original. My and original. I mean, there, there is a place for near miss reporting. Yeah. In in if it's done well, and if it's in a known blame culture, and it gives us a so what at the end of it. Yep. But if we're just ticking a box because that's what we're meant to be doing now, mm-hmm. then it's a pointless exercise. And people see that it's a pointless exercise. And one of the things I hear a lot in organisations around near-miss reporting is, we, we, we do these reports, but we have no idea what happens to them. And we don't see anything as a <laughs> yeah. result of it. So of course their motivation is degraded, because yeah. now they feel like they're on a treadmill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think the same is
1: true with reporting. Forget near-miss, which is massively problematic. Uh, you look at parallel industries, the aviation industry, space industry, nuclear. Near-miss reporting is so hard to get people to do well. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, when someone's fallen down a hole, you have to tell someone about it. That's, that's you know, they, they're still down the hole. Get them out of the hole. Uh, but when they nearly fell down the hole, well, we don't have to tell anyone about it. It's now my own volition to do that. Yeah. Uh, but motivation is still the factor. Well, why should I want to do that? You, you alluded it to earlier on with, with, with education. We can tell people the right answer, or we can tell people why the right answer exists. Mm-hmm. That's a really important factor, but motivation can come from a ton of different directions. We, we can try and tweak people's motivation by getting them invested in something. And that's why I think gamification is really powerful. Outside of the education arena, we can give people a gamified, a dual reality of, of where they are right now. Uh, whatever they're doing, we can add a gamification layer on top. If we're asking them to uh, for example fishing exercises okay I am I, um, yeah but have a love-hate relationship with fishing exercises. I don't want to seem just negative all right fishing exercises do have a place without shadow of a doubt uh, it's just right now they're in the wrong place
0: my, my challenge with a lot of fishing exercises is that they're then used as an opportunity to beat up the staff wow. See, and you, you mentioned blame rather already, than, and rather than a, a learning opportunity yeah and very few organizations After they've run a phishing exercise, we'll go and spend time with staff who have interacted with the the phishing email and ask them the why. Yeah, yeah. What were you doing at the point at which you interacted (laughs) with this? What was the environment like? Were you distracted? You know, um, was there a lot of background noise? Was it was it straight after you came back from lunch or first thing in the morning? Actually, we get more from that conversation than we do. From just the exercise alone without a doubt
2: absolutely think about where we've been for the last couple of years the amount of pressure that people have been under yeah you know move their work environment you know they may not necessarily want to be working from home they may be working on their bed or on their sofa yep members of their family might be seriously ill or mm-hmm. have died. Oh, the the, the children in the really background,
0: walking in and out of your really, Skype meeting. Really yeah.
2: stressful. Yeah, without really a doubt. Stressful. And all
1: your cues are shifted as well. So even if you were particularly competent at doing that so in one setting, in yeah. yeah, fundamentally important. Well, well that,
0: what Covid did was it fundamentally shifted your your competency framework because you took people who, you know, for years they'd had this structure, they got up, they went to work, they did their work they went home they had a commute that was a break in thinking between work and home and suddenly work and home are the same place the same yeah. environment and there's a whole new learning that has to come out of that to get competence in that environment yeah yeah with a shadow and, of a doubt you know i mean there's a guy um dave that works for us he has um he's transitioned from the ref into it's been life he's been with us for 15 years now actually Um, but he right from the very early days he had to he had to he felt he had to put this structure in place to allow him to be able to work from home so he gets up with his wife they have breakfast together he says I'm going to work now and goes up the stairs to his office he closes the door and he doesn't emerge from the office until it's lunchtime and he comes home for lunch (laughs) even though the environment is still the same place he's created a virtual workplace that yeah. allows him to still have that structure mm-hmm. as if he was going to an office. Yeah, but, but that is, that's an example of a good workaround. That's yeah. trying to find a situation
1: that is uncomfortable and building yourself a set of coping strategies to make the most of that situation. That, that's that's great, isn't it?
0: But, but what happens when you don't have the luxury of that space or environment or, or structure? What happens when your office is actually an ironing board in your kitchen and you're sharing that ironing board with your wife and the two kids who are currently off school because we're in the middle of a lockdown?
1: Yeah, I think um, after, after two and a half years, if you're still sharing an ironing board, perhaps look at an upgrade. Two um, ironing boards? Yeah, another ironing, ironing board. Yeah. Because yeah. surely you're going to have to do the ironing at some point. Um, <laughs> you're working from
2: home, nobody bothers ironing anymore. That's
1: a valid point, doesn't it? Please, Who irons pyjamas?
2: Yeah.
0: But I think you're right. I think you know things like gamification, used well
2: mm-hmm. and for the
0: right reasons. Yeah. And with the intention of it being a learning opportunity. Yes. But... Doing things like fishing exercises just because that's now the trendy thing to do.
1: Isn't it just? And uh, the, the fishing exercise thing winds me up, right? Because there, there's there's a fundamental uh, tenet of behavioural change, and that's a psychological contract. Okay, You and I, right now, in this conversation, all of us have a psychological contract. Yeah. Uh, there are certain expectations you have on me. We didn't have to sit down and talk about them or negotiate them. Uh, you know I'm not going to be violent. I'm not going to be abusive, destructive. I'm not going to start a fire. It's very unlikely. But uh, one of those tenets that's just kind of part of the rule of being a human is we don't lie to one another. If I say something, you should start on the basis that I'm telling the truth. Yes. Yeah. And if if you discover that I'm lying, that's going to radically distort your opinion of me. Mm -hmm. So why do we think it's okay to lie to our staff? That's, that's what it is, right? A phishing test, a phishing exercise, whatever we want to call it. And I think in this, this context, I'm calling it a test mm-hmm. quite loaded, because we are lying to people, mm-hmm. and then we make them feel bad when they fall foul of our lie. The relationship between us and our staff is, is so degraded and so damaged that anything we say beyond that point this this concept of guerrilla training. Uh, if I send you a message and you click on it, ha, fell foul, now your screen is locked and you've got to do five minutes of training. The emotional response to that training is so negative yeah. that people will be worse
0: off for it. They're actually more damaged than they were going into it. And, and yet the, the way in which we measure the success of this test is that less people fall for our lie next year.
1: And isn't that ridiculous? Because and as a social engineer, I know I can construct with, with appropriate open source intelligence, I can construct an email that will get 100% success rate. So I, that's I, what we
2: should be teaching our people should be teaching them to do that to each other exactly as, as part of training to so say okay so you've learned these things about your colleagues So
1: we, we
0: run
2: what would you do how would you build a spear phishing email to, to get them to do what it is that you want them to do exactly
0: so you run that this comes back to the question you asked um, some minutes ago which is of your colleagues who do you think would be the least likely to fall yeah. for that
2: yeah
0: and why mm-hmm is, and the other side of it is, and if you were going to try and make them fall foul of it, what would make, what them? Would make yeah. them? Yeah. Now, there is a danger
1: with this, and I, I love it, and, and I've taught uh, classes before where I use that, where everyone kind of pings someone else, and it's like secret centre of fishing. Uh, and it's great fun, okay? If you've got a um, compliant, interesting, engaged, and consenting group,
2: mm-hmm.
1: the minute you strip consent out of that, you're still breaking the psychological yeah. contract. So what we need to do, uh, and this thing that, that we're delivering here, uh, is reverse fishing exercises. Okay? Well, one of my tactics for doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to lie to you. I'm going to give you blanket consent to lie to me. And then if you lie better than all of your friends, I'm going to give you a prize. And the prize is intangible. It's it's not really, you can't put your hand on it, uh, but it's status. It feels good to have won the challenge. And this reverse fishing exercise exposes you to different strategies. We have people that do research on how to better do this stuff. And the more exposed you are to the mechanics of deception, the more you are exposed to the mechanics of influence, the less likely you are to fall foul of them because you can observe them that much easier. Mm-hmm. And we've just got open competitions. All right, fish us. We've got a fishing inbox. You fish us. We'll tell you how you did and it's a really nice little exercise. And the other side side of this, and something that I think is is incredibly important, is stripping the deception out as much as we possibly can. So we do run outward-facing phishing exercises, okay? Uh, but the first email you will receive from me is a picture of a fish that says, "This is a phishing email. Please action." There's no deception there, right? I, I've just said to you, "This is a bad email. You've got to do something with it. Please action this." So, staff go, all right, okay, report fishing. Click the little button, off it goes. Great. A little while later, we'll come back and go, well done, you did exactly what we expected you to do. Do you want to go up to level two? They'll go, oh, maybe. Do you know what, if they say no, I don't care. I'll just keep sending them the first one. Sooner or later, curiosity will bite and they'll go, all right, we can go up a level here. What I want to wonder what it is. What is level two? Now I've got consent. Yeah. now I can start to do very soft deception with them using basic tactics and then we send them an office 365 email with office spell wrong they go all right yeah easy got you caught you out didn't i brilliant would you like level three as autonomy builds in we can get up to incredibly complex deceptive emails yeah. with our players then yes. they have a hundred percent consent they want to do this because they want to catch me out
2: yeah.
1: and it's just this lovely way of, of using uh, consensual deception
0: it's really interesting because in the in the leadership world, um, we talk a lot about good leadership involving positive regard. Mm-hmm. So even when people get it wrong, they're not bad people. Exactly. And you can't you can't go through that onion layer to the core of them as an individual and say you're a bad person because you got it wrong. You have to understand, you know, the hows and whys, the mechanics of, of what went wrong, yeah. and help them not to do that again but they, they probably haven't deliberately and maliciously got it wrong. No, no, exactly. And so you have to, that conversation, when you're saying to somebody, you are not behaving according to my expectations, your you know, your work is not up to the standard at which I expect. Yeah. There are several things that need to have taken place in order for that conversation to be appropriate. The first one is, were you explicit in setting your expectations in the first place, whether it's behavior, attitudes? Yep. Um, standard of work etc and then the other is that you have to have that conversation maintaining positive regard yeah. i am not having this conversation with you because you're a bad person i'm having this conversation with you because this is not according to the expectations yeah um and and the the, the final bit of all of that is that um i think and it pretty much what you what you're defining there is that you build a positive relationship that is a mutually respectful relationship yes because you're not you're not lying to, there's no deception, you're not mm-hmm. lying to people, you're not trying to trick them, you're making them part of the gamification yeah. with their consent, and through that um, consent, uh, I love the idea of the eventually, okay, what is level two? The curiosity, they're actually pulling them into the game yeah. through their own volition, rather than forcing them to, play, to take part. Exactly, A-
1: another major thing that we should be considering if we're trying to intervene with behavior is autonomy. And I talk about autonomy quite a lot. Uh, No one should be forced to do something they don't want to do. So it's our job to try and influence secure behavior to figure out a way to make it something you want to do. Now, this is adjacent to motivation. Mm -hmm. Motivation is finding the kernel of what motivates you, what drives you. Do we go for intrinsic or extrinsic motivations? Do we find something that is relevant for you? Do we give you incentivization? Whereas autonomy is giving you the freedom to say, actually, do you know what? No, I don't want to do that. How how can Mm. we empower people as much as possible that they can retain their own autonomy in every secure decision? Now sometimes that might be separation of duties. We might be trying to wrap a process around something that helps free people up more effectively. Sometimes it might be environmental design. How do I flow you through an environment where your autonomy still feels like it's intact? Mm -hmm. Uh, Honestly, this is like a bottomless pit of things that you could do that's so untapped.
2: It's like being taken through Ikea. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> Ikea, you feel a there degree is, of
0: autonomy. There is no is autonomy. There, is no, <laughs> autonomy. there <laughs> is no autonomy in the route through Ikea. All routes through Ikea lead to meatballs. It is as simple as that.
1: But people still go in there because they feel they have a degree of autonomy. Even yeah. though they they go in with this this kind of like, you know, everyone knows the route through Ikea, right? And everyone knows you're going to end up with meatballs. Not even sure why, but you do end up with meatballs on your plate thinking, I don't really like them, but I'll have them anyway. <laughs> You still have the freedom to move around that, and the, the environmental designers. Uh, there, there's a whole field of behavioral economics and behavioral science that's focused on designing environments to help facilitate consumerism. Mm-hmm. Honestly, fascinates me. Uh, but IKEA is one of those beautiful examples where you have alternate paths. You can go. You can either go through the model home, or you can go down the quick route. That's that's injecting sense of autonomy. That's allowing you to pretend that you were in control, but you weren't.
0: Yeah. (laughs) I I think you know, there's there's an element here of nudge theory coming into play, isn't there? Yes. Yeah, there is. I think one of the most powerful aspects
1: of nudge is how you approach intervention. Hmm. So intervention does not have to be uh, on or off. Yep. And yeah. I think the, the proponents of nudge uh, tend to lean into this concept much better that we just need to make someone slightly more secure than they were yesterday mm-hmm. rather than I'm going to try and patch human vulnerability because that's impossible it's never ever going to mm-hmm. happen uh, and I love that aspect of it I I think nudge occasionally
0: gets overused as a panacea it, it isn't uh, well as, as with many many things no one thing is the um, the panacea, We no, one like agile? the cyber amulet, oh. you know, it's like, <laughs> and, that's, and the truth is that there are too many companies out there who are selling their solution, their technology yes. or their education as being the golden bullet, Of course, it's like, here, here are these magic beans, they will magically make your organisation secure yeah. overnight without you having to do any hard work yourself.
1: But, and, and anyone who's listening to this looking for the right answer to change behaviour, uh, spoiler alert, there isn't a right answer. Uh, if you want to fix behavior, it's never going to happen. Because aside from the fact that people will revert to a mean unless you pay attention to them over time, you, you, you keep bringing them back up to the standard you expect, the standard's also going to change. Hmm. In a couple of years' time, quantum cryptography uh, will be a thing that that's going to happen, it's inevitability. And there are gonna be radical changes in the way that we interpret security. The focus on physical security is gonna be that much greater because now it's gonna be so much more easy to walk onto a site and steal something than it's gonna be to try and attack it digitally. So, uh, yeah, we're we're chasing moving goalposts with uh, a a group of people that are always gonna find a way to get around something that you've put in place.
0: I mean, I, I would say, Having been in the security world for about nearly 30 years um, I would find it hard to put my finger on one genuine occasion when we have been ahead of the bad guys we're not security is fundamentally responsive
1: yeah. we, we've always got to keep our finger on the pulse uh, I think it's important that we build intelligence into the way that we think and intelligence in the, the hard military version of that we need to think about what the adversary is trying to achieve and then try and manage that situation uh, the one thing I can guarantee you is the adversary will always consider the person crime theory foundational says go for the weak underbelly people will be something that is exploitable they're not the weakest link they're the thing that you could get up quickly.
0: Is it by its very language the fact that um, some security people will refer to their users as the weakest link, is in itself being disingenuous?
2: Completely.
1: Well, I think there are two sides to this. Okay, So either we can look at people as the weakest link. Are people the most exploitable component of any given system? I think yes. I think people are the most exploitable component of any system. The reason why I think that phrasing is problematic, who cares? It genuinely does not matter. We have a a task to bring people up to uh, a place where they're slightly more secure than they were yesterday. Uh, I think the most uh, damaging component of, of this kind of weakest link thinking is it makes you take people for granted, it makes you think that people are a problem and they're just. They're always going to be a problem. Let's not worry about that. Let's invest in
0: other stuff. But that, that's the language well, that is exactly it. used. <laughs> but that is it the is. language that's, that's being exactly used all the time. Problem. The users are the problem. We hear IT, We hear people in the IT industry referring to their own users as the stupid user. Well,
1: look, Do you know that I'm interested? Right. This is, this is good fun. Little game, right? I love gamification. <laughs> uh, do you know what picnic is? Have you heard of picnic?
0: I have. It's I IT, I, IT of my slang. I
1: problem in chair not in
0: that's it cure. yeah yeah uh, yeah the problem is with the interface between the keyboard and the. there we go yeah.
1: that's good uh, what, what other ones have we got we've got uh, oh uh, an ID 10 issue ID 10 T beg your pardon if you spell it out it spells idiot yes yeah yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, layer, eight. Uh, layer 8 so I, I worked one of my first IT jobs was working on a help desk and you would see all of these yeah all of these of things course you do. Put in the notes
1: because that's normative rhetoric that's what people talk about this, this is what I mean that the the um, ontological world view that people are vulnerable absolutely true using that ontology is dangerous Mm. because it, it just stops you interfacing with people and and trying to make people slightly more secure
2: and that's why there's a world of difference between considering people to be your weakest link and considering people to be you know the most malleable you know way in if you like the, they're two completely different things in my mind.
1: Isn't it fascinating that it's really hard to try and fa- phrase the inversion well? Mm. The people are your strongest asset. No, that's not true at all. Mm. Okay, they could be, but they aren't now, are they? If I want to attack a, a site, I want to attack a, a capability, I go in via people. Because mm-hmm. that's what I've been trained to do. That's, that's my thing. Uh, that has no bearing on your staff as a weak link or a strong component. That's me. as a bad guy. That's just my preferred vector
0: and that that's actually the case whether you're talking about physical security yeah. or IT security yeah is it's usually it is the the individuals who let you in yeah. it's the you know there's nothing quite so powerful as that three hot dad run as a door's closing to get somebody to step backwards and hold it open for you yeah yeah i agree entirely we were joking about the door thing holding your door open yeah. uh,
1: i have accessed incredibly secure sites using tailgating just just because it's the kind of thing that I like to do. Now I know that there are lots of actors out there, malicious actors, both genuine uh, malicious actors and fellow pen testers uh, and SE pen testers, physical site testers, mm-hmm. that have their own roots and mechanisms. So what I think we need to do is, is stop talking about humans as the weakest link and start talking about an attractive attack surface because humans are an attractive attack surface. Mm-hmm. We're not blaming them. That's just a good route in. It feels like it would be more more productive.
0: Well, I think you, you could use exactly the same language by saying that an unpatched system is an attractive attack surface. Yeah. But it's not a weak system. No. Inherently. Exactly. It, it just needs to be looked after. It strips the
1: binary out of it. Yeah. You know, a patch system, an unpatched system becomes a secure system when you patch it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. People will become slightly more secure if you give them the tools, you give them the opportunity, you give them the capability to patch. do so. No, no, we don't patch people. <laughs> we will find a way to improve their
0: security. God, baiting me. <laughs> um, but yeah, we, we can make people slightly more secure. So in, in, in the introduction, I talked about the, you recently come back from Las Vegas. And, and I know, you know before we started recording, you gave me a, a very quick understanding of the, what you're lecturing about out there and I think it's something that actually our listeners would find really fascinating if you can take the time to talk us through malicious floor walker <gasps> interactions. Yes.
1: So floor walker is, is a, a fantastic piece of work and I'm going to say that with all the ego it deserves because it's bloody brilliant okay uh floor walker it was designed between a few of, of my team, uh, most notably Steve, Steve Dusnip, a phenomenal psychologist uh, that I've been working with for a couple of years now. Um, and we together figured out that what we were trying to do was influence challenge. Uh, I think personally there are two primary things that we need people to do. Um, take a step back education, we tend to uh, take people as cyber aware or not cyber aware. And there's actually quite a lot of stuff that goes into cyber aware. We could strip that right back, actually. If we just made everyone challenge that which they didn't like and then report anything that they didn't like, we would be a much more secure organisation. We don't need to do more than that. We've got to have some understanding in order to know those things. But even without that understanding, if we said there are two things I want you to do, yeah, say it, see it, it's all good, done. Someone else has used that phrase, though, haven't they? It's yeah. London Underground. Anyway, uh, the point is that those two... Really powerful forces. Challenge and report are the two things we should be focused on. So first off, Steve and I really dove into challenge. How can we influence challenge behaviours? And we looked at the fact that there are lots of factors that kind of go into your ability to challenge something. First off, uh, do you see something that deserves challenging? Maybe there's a, a gap in knowledge. Maybe there's, um, uh, a, a, you just didn't see it. If someone walks behind you, you don't have eyes in the back of your head, you can't do anything. right? So maybe that's a factor. Maybe it's perception. M- maybe you see someone walking around who's demonstrating a risky behavior, but you know them, right? They're fine. Mm-hmm. Or there they could be a gendered factor to this. Women aren't bad guys, women are lovely people. Mm-hmm. Or maybe th- there's a raft of other reasons why you might perceive something not to be a threat. Yeah. A valid reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we've got one that, all right, imagine you do interpret something as a threat. Do you have the psychological tools or experience or practice to be able to convert that, I don't like this into Excuse me, could I see your ID? No. Now, what we thought is, is through our, our pen testing experience, uh, it is fascinating how many places we go to, we walk around, and we see people' uh, heads pop up, see the eyebrow furrow a little bit, and then they go back to work. Okay, they've seen us. They are in that last category. They have noticed us because they yeah. wouldn't pop up otherwise. They know we're a threat or their brow wouldn't furrow, but they just don't have that last mile. And that is the most common reaction to when you see an interloper, okay? So we, we determined that uh, the thing that is missing is a psychological script. The rules for this interaction. We work off of schema as humans. We, we have to know how to do something before we can do it comfortably ourselves. And that's missing because the only time you get to challenge a bad guy is when there is a bad guy in front of you. That's horrible because you can only get a negative experience. Either you say, excuse me, where's your ID? And the person goes, how very dare you. Don't you know who I am? Yes. Oh, I don't like that. That makes you feel bad. Or they go, oh, no, I forgot my ID. Everything's bad. And it makes them cry. And that makes you feel horrible. Yeah, yeah. slightly exaggerated, but you get the idea. Mm-hmm. Or they genuinely are a bad guy. And things go really, really bad from that point onwards. So there's, there's nothing good that can come out of practicing challenging behaviors. That's why the script doesn't exist. So what we need to do is build the script. So to do that, we need to make sure that we are blindingly obvious, so you catch us, that, that attention aspect. If we're not obvious, you won't see us. Then we need to make sure you perceive us as a threat unquestionably, so there is no gray area. We're a bad guy. And then we have to give you the opportunity, on the fly, unengaged, unconsciously, to construct your own challenge. Now the beauty of this is what we did, We uh, <laughs> made a load of t-shirts right that say stupid things on them like challenge me or my favorite my, my one is i am lying to you which is, is great uh, and it's a nice big size 72 you know it really stands out there uh, and then we'll go up to people and we'll say excuse me uh, i'm running late for a meeting uh, and i've got to print this document off could i and i'm handing a usb of an imaginary usb stick here could you plug that in for me and just print off that document there's only one document on there it's going to take you 30 seconds i'm using all the tactics of a social engineer i'm time bounding the interaction yeah. i'm building a report doing energy matching <laughs> everything i should be doing but i stand out like a sore thumb i look ridiculous and we get a variety of reactions here sometimes we get a giggle the bloody hell do you think you are what are you doing that's ridiculous sometimes we get ah, I'm, I'm not gonna do that no I think that's against and this is wonderful right because as soon as we see that stumbling someone is in the process of forming a script Mm -hmm. they're producing a set of rules that go I am NOT going to allow this I am a person who doesn't allow these things to happen and I'm gonna say no and then I'm gonna ask for your ID that's generated a whole new thing that that person never had before yeah and that's what this the floor-walker interaction is we've seen after we run this engagement, we can go around a floor plate and talk to loads of different people. We get fantastic humour. We get people uh, laughing and joking along with us. We see some people with a bit of concern. As soon as they realise we're wearing the stupid T-shirt, they go, "Oh, oh, this is pretend. This is this is an exercise, isn't it? This is fake." Yeah. Yes, which is a version of gamification, by the way. We're creating uh, a dual reality, a game world that the person's inhabiting. Yeah. When they join us in the game world, they go, oh, there is nothing I can do now that would screw up. There's nothing I could do that would be so bad yeah. that I can do it wrong, which gives me the freedom and flexibility to try out stuff. We've yeah. had people shouting out of windows at us, <laughs> going, look at them dodgy guys, what are they doing? They're obviously doing something. In fact, the name of our, um, our, our talk at Black Cat uh, was No Mr. Cyber Threat. And that was because at one location, we had someone stand up and shout across the floor plate at us, no Mr. Cyber Threat, I'm not gonna let you do that. That's brilliant. I think we've brought every person on that floor plate into this exercise. Every single person around now knows that, A, how to do a challenge. Admittedly, that's not the prototype for it. The prototype is the permission, the fact that you can do that. And then we've had a role model talking about authority earlier on. Everyone in that room now knows exactly who the authoritative figure is and what they would do. So now you've got both yeah. layers happening. You've got the behavioural layer and you've got the cultural layer. Challenge becomes normalised.
0: And the, there's a common thing running through all of that, side is, you know, again, it comes back to you're not treating them as though they're idiots. No. Um, you are behaving with positive regard towards them. Mm-hmm. You are um, catching them when they do it right. And again, that's another fundamental part of good leadership, catch yeah. people when they do it right. Yep. Because that reinforces positive behaviour. Without a doubt. And you're doing it in a way that is not a lie. It's not a deception. Right. You you stood there in a t-shirt that says, "I am the threat. Challenge me." <laughs>
1: yeah. Even the USB sticks we use are 3D printed, 100% plastic. So even if they did plug them in, it's never going to cause a breach. And they're bright orange or glow in the dark, with danger engraved on them. Yeah. So they they stand the minute they hold this this tactile object, they go, "No
2: way. No. I'm
1: not doing that.
0: Get away." Do you know that is that is? I mean, it's genius, um, and really I'm just pandering to his ego, guys, but it is genius. It's working. It's, it, it's, uh, yeah. it, it just absolutely, you know, for me, intuitively, it, it just ticks all of the mental boxes in my head of leadership, mm. of you know, demonstrating quality leadership, positive regard, catching people doing it right. There's explicitness involved in all of this. But most importantly of all, we're actually, we're bringing our own people into the game and making them part of the solution, yeah, instead yeah. of continually trying to stop them from doing stuff by locking them out of yes. the systems.
1: It is an empowerment, which yeah. we're, we're coaching how and, to do the successful I, challenge. I
0: still have the empowerment, right, that mm. even, at, even having read your T-shirt and got the dangerous glow-in-the-dark USB yeah. stick in my hand, I can still plug that into my you computer, could. should I choose to do so. So we're not stripping them of their auto- autonomy. Exactly, exactly.
2: So you don't have to go all the way to the marketplace if you don't want to. That's right. Those <laughs> you can actually turn right and head through storage yeah. and yeah. you are free to do what you
1: want to do. and mm-hmm. uh, now I I am willing to divulge the dirty secret, okay? Uh, no one, no one fails Floor Walker. Everyone is coached towards a challenge. And we've been to places where people one of the scenarios we use and it's brilliant, uh, I will in my t shirt uh, and I usually I go for props that try and inspire absolute horror in individuals that are like, no, this is too ridiculous, it's too silly to be real. Yeah. So I, I, I get my um, my like coffee shop napkin and a dodgy pencil and I'll go up to uh, our, our um, coachy subject and say, hi there, I'm really sorry, uh, I've been sent here to ask some details, can I have your email address? There's no context, mm-hmm. there's, there's no, it, it's quite an alien thing. Now in rare, rare circumstances, people are so socially compliant that they will give me that. And I go, okay, thank you very much. Uh, and sorry, what department do you work for? And I'll write that down. Okay, what's your mother's maiden name? Okay, could you tell me the last four digits of your bank account? And eventually, they'll get to a point where they go, uh, n- no, no, I'm, not, I'm sorry, I'm not doing that. Who are you, why are you here? And that's the rule of the floor walker. We always, always get caught every single time because we are failing at our mission if we don't turn this social engineering interaction into a coaching engagement. And what that takes is an extremely proficient social engineer. This is not the kind of thing that someone can just whip on a t-shirt and go out and do. You need to be able to know exactly as a malicious actor would do, how you can steer someone towards a conclusion. It is very, very hard to get right.
0: That's absolutely fascinating, Cy. Si. Ladies and gentlemen, I honestly could sit here for the rest of the day and have this conversation, and indeed, I might. <laughs> um, but for now, um, that brings us to our time. Cy um, si um, absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for your time here today. Thank you
1: very
2: much for having me. This has been the Advent I Am podcast, Risk and Business.